Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Each day when a cutter is brought to a field, they're told a number. It's the amount they'll earn for cutting a row of sugarcane. Remember, sugarcane is planted in rows. Some days it's $100 per row. Some days it's $150. Some days it's $80. And a single row can take days to cut. But I want to zero in on one day and one field. In this particular field, the workers, after cutting for a couple hours, figured out, we're not going to make any money because the price is too low but the price you're paying will be lucky to make $10 today. And so they stopped working. It's 1986, and there are grumblings. It's the start of an infamous event in the annals of the Florida sugarcane industry. It started when a group of workers declared, we're not cutting cane at these prices, it's just not enough money. And so a number of the workers said, well, we're just not going to cut today, and we're going to walk back to the camp. And it was not like it was on back roads that nobody saw. There were all of a sudden these hundreds of men walking down the highway. Um, And it certainly got people's attention. The farm these guys were working for is one of the biggest of all the sugarcane farms in Florida. It's called Ocalanta. It's owned by the most famous sugar barons in America, the Von Hull brothers. So after that long walk back to the barracks, there's an eerily quiet night. It's not until the morning that a representative from the sugar company arrives. Rather than send the workers out on their usual bus to the field, the company wants to negotiate. They offer to pay a bit more, but the workers won't budge. Ultimately, the company just said, we've had it, we're done with these guys. And that's when things really started to go bad. Minutes after the negotiator leaves, police cars begin to surround the building, accompanied by Okalanta buses and a helicopter. The company called the local sheriff's department, who sent out a riot squad. And the riot squad was directed to round up the supposed instigators, and they they figured some might be hiding in the barracks. Inside the massive building is Jamaican sugarcane cutter Selvin Grant. 
it was a strike, but I was not involved. But I was right there. He isn't part of the strike. Actually, he's cut his finger and is recuperating. When all of a sudden, uniformed officers barge in. And one of the police was advancing to me, and I tell him, man, I'm not involved. My finger cut. I'm sick. I just come from the doctor. And I was showing them my bandage and my finger, saying that I'm not in no strike. But from Selvin's perspective, the shotgun-armed police seemed to be rounding up everyone. So it seemed like police was not listening to me. He was advancing to me like he wanted to grab me. Selvin isn't alone. There are loads of guys caught up in the chaos. Certain workers had actually gone to the barracks, not because they were hiding from the police, but they figured something is going on that sounds very bad. And we think the safest thing we can do is to sit on our bunk with our arms folded across our chest and nothing bad can happen to us. We won't be accused of striking. We'll just just be quiet and be obedient. My sense tell me that, get away from this crowd, get away, get away. And that's what I did. Selvin runs up some stairs and watches from a window on a higher floor. And I go upstairs and was watching what's going on. And then all of a sudden I see the police come with a dog. The riot squad came into the barracks and they brought with them their police dogs. And the police dogs attacked some of these workers who were sitting on their bunks. And several of them suffered some serious dog bite wounds. Most of the guys, they, they scared of the dog, so they just didn't even really run. They just stayed and police say, well, you got to come with me because uh, you guys seem like a troublemaker. Very scary, very scary. It was so scary. The remaining workers who were viewed as um, instigators or strikers were placed on buses and sent to the Miami airport to eventually be repatriated. More than 300 workers were rounded up by the police at gunpoint and sent back home, back to the Caribbean. This day, this event, was given a name. Not only the workers involved, but everyone there that day refers to the event as the Dog War. The Dog War, a day when tensions exploded into something that felt to many like armed combat. But how did things get this desperate, strained, violent even? This really starts to get to the heart of what this whole series is about. Not only the truth about what was happening in those fields, in those barracks, and how these men were being paid, but also the truth about what had been going on for decades, really, in an impenetrable industry that was carefully and quietly managing its operations, its image, and its money in secrecy. But slowly, people were beginning to take notice. I'm Celeste Headley, and from iHeartMedia, Imagine Audio, and the teams at Weekday Fun and Novel, this is Big Sugar, Episode 2. The grass is always greener. Please go ahead, introduce yourself. If we are meeting at a, at a cocktail party, tell me who you are and what you do. Uh, I'm Edward Tuttenham, and I'm an attorney. Edward Tuttenham has spent his career challenging some of the working practices of big agriculture. And when that's your job, well, you're bound to make a few enemies. I remember one farmer I'd sued called me up, and I picked up the phone, and he just said, listen, 
I'm about to leave town and I want to kill you. I want you to drive down to my ranch right now so I can shoot you. I said, well, I'm tied up. (laughs) I can't can't actually make it now. But if you'll call me back when you're back in town, we can talk about it. Farmers were angry. Angry enough to threaten Edward's life, albeit not angry enough to make the short ride to commit the crime. But this, it turns out, was par for the course when you're a lawyer sticking up for migrant farm workers. The windows of our office were routinely broken out, people driving by at night, throwing rocks through them. How did Edward wind up in this situation? After graduating from Harvard in 1978, he went to work for Texas Rural Legal Aid. It's an organization that gives free legal help to farm workers, helping them with their pay and conditions. Had you been to Texas before that? Uh, no. No, I had not. (laughs) Despite having little to no knowledge of Texas, Edward buttoned up his Brooks Brothers shirt and got straight to work. They picked me up at the airport, and immediately we drove to a picket line. He represented onion harvesters, cotton pickers, and then began what he calls the Texas Melon Experience, standing up for Mexican cantaloupe pickers in the Presidio Valley. And, you know, that was exactly what I wanted to do. If this was a Rocky-style training montage, Edward would be right there on the picket line, drafting briefs and cross-examining witnesses. Instead of hooking Russian boxers, he'd be KOing exploitative farmers. The young, ambitious lawyer even deposed a local sheriff, whose claim to fame was that he conducted the last public hanging in Texas. The ranchers gave Edward a nickname, the Harvard Idiot. And... Is it true that uh, a deputy wrote a song? (laughs) It wasn't the deputy. It was the county sheriff. The name of the song was Get Out of Hereford TRLA, which was Texas Rural Legal Aid. All this is to say that almost nothing would deter this Harvard idiot. Not threatening phone calls, not even hostile ballads composed by local law enforcement. He was going to defend farm workers, no matter what. I'm very similar to Edward Tudnam. This is Greg Shell, managing attorney at Southern Migrant Legal Services, another group that helps migrant farm workers. And Greg was one year behind Edward Tudnam at Harvard Law School. One thing going to a high-pressure, high-prestige law school like Harvard is that it instills in you, if nothing else, an extreme sense of self-confidence. Some people would say arrogance. And you think that you can change the world and that you can do things. You can prevail over daunting odds because you can outsmart the other side. And the challenge is something you relish. And Edward was outsmarting the other side, winning many of his cases. So picture it. Edward's riding high on a string of successes, holding powerful farmers to account. Pay your workers properly. Treat them properly. Side note. Some of the farm workers did end up getting fired after the lawsuits. Farmers would find other ways of harvesting that were cheaper than paying proper wages. But hey, there's always going to be collateral damage in the pure pursuit of justice, right? So by the mid-1980s, Edward wound up working in Washington, D.C. and in search of his next big fish to fry. Although this time, the big fish was sweet. Sugar. There were many things Edward found himself fighting in the courts, like terrible working conditions and injuries. But when it came to the sugarcane cutters, there was one thing which kept coming up again and again. 
wages. They didn't understand how they were being cheated. They just knew that they were being cheated in some way. Some sugarcane cutters reported they were somehow earning just a few dollars an hour, well below the minimum wage at the time. And this is also what journalist Marie Brenner heard when she was looking into the story in the 1990s. She was working on an article for Vanity Fair, an article which eventually became the inspiration for this podcast. So, in full investigative mode, one day she's in lawyer Greg Shell's office, and she comes across a letter that one cutter had written home. Here's a letter, one letter we can read from the article. Dear Fatty, how keeping. I hope all of you are well. I write you and send you $26. I don't know if you get it. You wouldn't know what I'm going through. We get a cane row for $30. It takes two days to cut it. That works out to be some $1 and some cents an hour. I spoke to the timekeeper, and he's ready to eat me up. He says we just have to work fast enough, and then we'll make even more than the hourly wages they promised us. Imagine, to leave Jamaica, so many hundreds of miles, to come to America and work for one dollar and some cents an hour. I looked up from that letter, and I said to Greg Shell, how is this even possible legally? Okay, so to answer that, let's get into the nuts and bolts of what happens when sugarcane is being cultivated. Imagine a massive field. Sugarcane is planted in rows. Rows and rows of these long, thick stalks of sugarcane. Some are 13 feet high and two inches around. It's a grass, so it grows just like when you cut the grass in your yard. It grows up back year after year. And at the time we're talking about, in the 80s and 90s, virtually all the sugarcane in America was cut by hand. Using a machine to cut the cane is certainly safer and more efficient. But some growers prefer manual labor because machines can accidentally pull out the roots of sugarcane, meaning it won't regrow the following year. So the workers turn up in the morning to a field, and they're told how much each row is worth. Every day, in every field, the rows would be priced differently. Cut this row today, and you'll get $50. The next day it would be, cut this row, and you'll get $80. It was a moving target. So there was nothing fixed that you could put your finger on. The cutters then get to work, chopping as quickly as they can, bent over, all day slashing the bottom of the cane with a machete. Sugarcane is very hard to cut. And these workers cut tons of it. On some of these farms in Florida, like eight tons a day. To put that in perspective, that's heavier than the combined weight of five Toyota Priuses. Which is astronomical. Then the sticks are sent to a sugar mill to be turned into syrup. And finally, crystals, which are packaged in the iconic bags found in nearly every supermarket and convenience store in America. These days, we eat on average six cups of sugar a week. And believe me, it's in almost everything. A couple years ago, I went sugar-free for six months, and I was shocked to find that my bread had sugar in it, and my pizza sauce, and my peanut butter, and my dried fruit, and my salad dressing. It was almost impossible to avoid it. So anyway, back to the sugar farms and to the cutters. At the end of the day, exhausted, they look down at their pay stubs. They think about how many hours they worked and how much it says they're going to be paid. 
it seems to be a lot less than what they expected to earn. I started looking into it. And at first, we did not realize exactly what was going on. There was this problem. Workers were getting underpaid. That was well known to any, a whole large group of advocates. But we didn't really understand why. It was all a bit mysterious. But then Edward Tuddenham had an idea. By this point, he was an expert in H-2 litigation, which made him fairly specialized. H-2A visas are used by farmers to bring in workers from overseas for temporary agricultural work. So in the case of sugar, it had historically been used for cutters from the West Indies, mainly Jamaica, but also Barbados, St. Lucia, St. Kitts, and others, since the sugar companies claimed almost no Americans would do the job. Edward starts scouring something called a clearance order. It's what an agent sends the Department of Labor on behalf of the farmers setting out what the job would be. It's like a contract. He looked at this very complicated contract that the Jamaican workers were employed under. And there were three terms that he obsessed over. It's complicated, so bear with me. One. If you cut eight tons in an eight-hour day, you will be a satisfactory worker. That's one ton per hour. Two. Earning $5.30 an hour is satisfactory. $5.30 is the minimum wage. Three. But anything less and you'll be fired. And I must have read those three sentences over and over and over again for months. Eight tons. 5.30 per hour is required. A worker would be expected to cut eight tons of cane in an eight-hour day. He took the time to parse this very thick and confusing document. You will be expected to cut fast enough to earn 5.30 an hour. And he read it carefully. To pay 5.30 a ton, a ton an hour is good enough. And earning 5.30 an hour, if you cut a ton an hour, you're a satisfactory worker. These three terms swirled around in Edward's head. Until finally, in conversation with Greg, suddenly the light bulb went on. He's got it. When you have those three statements, the logical answer is then they have to pay at least five thirty per ton. Again. If one ton an hour is good enough and earning five thirty an hour is good enough, but anything less than 530 gets you fired, then they have to pay at least 530 a ton. Edward had figured out one piece of the puzzle. He hypothesized that according to this clearance order, the workers should be paid at least $5.30 for every ton of cane they cut. That would be in line with the contract and minimum wage. And it would be in line with the expectation that the workers have been told they're expected to cut at least a ton an hour or they'll be fired but Edward suspected that the workers were being paid a lot less than $5.30 a ton. The problem was, how do you prove that this is occurring? How do you prove they were paying them less than $5.30 per ton? It's not like there were scales in the fields. The workers were just told a price for the row and got cutting. But there was potentially a lot at stake. And when I say a lot, I mean tens of millions of dollars. If you could prove in some easy way, not only that the workers were not being paid properly, but the amount they were owed, that would be a huge amount of money. Then, out of the blue, another piece falls into the puzzle. 
Edward sitting in his office in Washington, D.C., surrounded by boxes of paper pouring over the dense H-2 contract. He's been at this for months. All these phrases and clauses and legal parlance are echoing around in his brain. He's thinking in lawyer terms. How do I prove what's going on here? And then... I'm in my office and the phone rings. The secretary says to Edward... It's Ed Fountain and he needs to talk to you. I didn't know who Ed Fountain was. And I took the call and he said he was a former U.S. sugar supervisor. U.S. sugar is one of the biggest sugarcane producers in the country. So I got this call and, okay, you're a a supervisor for U.S. sugar. What about it? And he said, well... You know, I've just been fired, and I have some information that I think you would find useful. I said, really? What kind of information? (laughs) And he says, well, I'm the guy who prices the rose. I know how they do it. And that (laughs) perked up my ears pretty quickly. Yeah. And I said, great, where are you? Put Ed Fountain on hold. What exactly he told Edward? In just a minute. More after the break. Let's get back for a moment to who this story is really about, the sugarcane cutters. I wonder if you would, if we could start, if you don't mind, by telling me a little bit about Jamaica. What is Jamaica like? Well, it... Tell you about Jamaica now. Jamaica is very nice, very sunny. You have a lots of nice places where you can go, go hang out and enjoy yourself. Two of the Jamaican sugarcane cutters who found themselves caught up in the story are Victor Blackwood and Selvin Grant. And from the way they talk about their motherland, it's clear they love the island. In particular, they can wax lyrical about the food. Jerk chicken. Fish, rice and chicken, and if you eat ackee and saltfish and banana. Fish, fish is my favorite meal, fish. Snapper fish. As a matter of fact, fish is the best meal in the whole wide world. Very delicious. Despite the delicious snapper fish, growing up in downtown Kingston also came with its challenges for Selvin. I grew up in a ghetto, so guys my age, they die. And the reason, they, the reason why they die, they're in gangs. Some of them get shot by guns. Some of them get stabbed by knife. They didn't have anywhere else to go live, so I got to live in that same neighborhood. I got to be keep looking over my shoulder morning, noon, and night. For some people in Jamaica, including Selvin, the H-2 worker visa was a way to get out of the cycle, to come to the U.S. and earn money and change their lives. Being able to... Uh come to the United States is a very prized right in Jamaica. One way you can tell who has been working in the United States is very obvious when you travel rural Jamaica. As you ride through rural Jamaica, you will observe, it's like the little uh, children's story, The Three Little Pigs. You'll see most homes are made out of sticks, out of straw, but you'll see the homes made out of cinder blocks. And in almost every instance, the home made out of cinder blocks is a home that is being built by a worker who has come to the United States on the H-2 program. Selvin's life in Jamaica could have gone very differently. At one point, some guys asked him to join a gang, but he refused. He wanted to be like his dad. 
the kind of guy who worked from before sunrise to after sunset on his own farm. He was a hard worker. My dad was a very, very hard worker. I don't see no man in the world could work like my dad. Speaking of dads, Victor's father was actually part of the farm worker program too, cutting cane. He'd come home from working abroad, and he'd bring Victor new Wrangler jeans and cautionary tales about the difficulties of the job. So when he, when he come back and we are talking, he says, son, it is very rough. It is very rough. I say, well, dad, I would like to go there, go experience it for myself one day to come. But he said to me, it is very rough. So what part about it made you want to go? Why did you want to, to follow in your, your dad's footsteps and also travel to cut cane? Tell you the honest truth, I would like to have the experience. And at that time, I have two kids. So my goal is to go up there and work and come up here, come work and buy a piece of land and to make a house and to help take care of my kids. Selvin had similar aspirations. To better my life and not just me, my family too. Build up my house and send my kids to a better school. Selvin credits divine intervention for getting his shot at the H2 program. He says God put him in the right place at the right time. He simply overheard people talking about a local government official who was giving out farm worker cards. These are like passes that would allow you to go for an interview for the program. Just like that. Just like that. That's my first opportunity right there. Selvin went to the official and asked for a card. He did his homework, asked people about the interview, the tests, and even took the day off work before his physical. I do not want to fail. Both Selvin and Victor had heard it was a rigorous process. When Victor turned up for the selection day... So they called me name and I go up to a man, a big strapping white man by the name of Miranda. And he said, yes, Victor Blackwood. I said, yes. You eat pork? I said, yes, sir. They supposedly didn't want any pork-abstaining Rastafarians on the program. He said, you, you work seven days a week? I said, yes. He said, you eat rice? I said, yes, sir. Then they ask, can you cut sugarcane? Selvin says, yeah, I've worked with my dad and cut 14 tons a day. He said, what? That's a lot. I said, I'm very strong and I'm a hard worker, you know? And not another word. He just said, you pass. You go, go over there. Next, the infamous hand test. He said, let me see your hand. And I turn over my hand and I show him and he feel my hand. They'll ask the workers to uh, turn over their hands to see if they have calluses on them. Is this a person who's been doing manual labor or is this a person who's been working in an office building? What was he looking for when he was touching your hands? He wanted to know if my hand tough or it's soft. If your hand soft, they're not going to take it because they say you never used to work. So your hand soft. This was like out of slave trade. You know, they're looking at their hands to make sure their hands are big enough to be able to hold these scythes in in the fields. You hear about these scenes, and you could be back in the 19th century with the slave trade. And there's more. Selvin and Victor have to go to a testing center in Hanover Street, Kingston. And I go inside a, a room. It's a big room, big place. Can hold about 300 men. And we go inside a room, you take off your clothes, and 
then you leave into your, your underwear. A doctor arrives in this huge room where the men are waiting in their underwear. And then he said, he said, drop your drawers. And then he said, you must bend over. And he come back down and look if you have pile. Hundreds of naked men bent over, the doctor looking to see if the men have hemorrhoids. The men were treated as though they were livestock, a brutal and dehumanizing process. Then, once clothed... Then I got to go take um, a blood test. My blood was, was good. I got to take a, a urine test. My urine was good. I got to take, um, like, chest X-ray. The hand test, the physical, the blood test, the X-ray. Selvin and Victor got through it all. I pass, I pass. Everything I do, I pass. All this, imagine, the physical condition you need to be in just to cut sugarcane. Not something you want to think about when you're adding a teaspoon of sweetness to your morning coffee. So most men are ushered to the reject exit. But Victor and Selvin are directed towards another door. They're going to America. I was so confident that I'm, 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 I'm going to America. Yeah, I was so confident. One last thing. Before they move on to their bright future in the U.S., they just need to add their signature to a stack of documents. You sign a contract then, right? You're going to sign your contract. Did you read the contract before you signed it? Not exactly, because they are fine print. And there were so many papers. You couldn't really go, if you could go through those papers, it would take you the whole day. Did you notice anyone trying to stop and read them before they signed? No. No, 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 no. Everybody was so happy to go that they didn't really stop to read the papers then. You understand? I do. More after the break. So we're back to the contract. That contract they signed... Well, it's the same document lawyer Edward Tuddenham would go on to obsess over for months before that fateful call from the former U.S. sugar supervisor, Ed Fountain. Ed has evidence, he says, of how this complicated and frankly confusing system of row pricing works, of how much money the sugar cane cutters are really being paid. So Edward says to him, Okay, Mr. Fountain, when can I meet you? Anytime, anytime. Just come, you know. Next time you're in Asheville, I said, well, I'm, I'm coming to Asheville just as soon as I can get a plane ticket. I flew to Asheville and met Mr. Fountain in a diner. And then the thing that he gave us that sort of broke the case open was a pricing sheet. This was how the company supposedly determined how much the cutter was going to be paid per row of cane he cut. It was an insanely complicated system to figure out from scratch, there are hundreds and hundreds of cane fields, and they need to be priced every day. This pricing chart was produced by the sugar companies for each field they planted. The chart lays out the estimated number of tons in every single field of sugar, as well as how many rows are in a given field. And according to Ed, this is how they calculate the total price to be paid per row. It was all pre-calculated. I mean, it's just a mathematical conversion. For example, 
If one field is estimated to hold 40 tons of sugar, planted in, let's say, eight rows, this will give you five tons of cut sugar per row. Multiplying this number by the amount budgeted for the harvest gives the farmer the price they want to pay per row. And to make it even easier, at the very top, it said, you know, 325 per ton. Was that a little like a smoking gun? Uh, yeah. A smoking gun because, remember from the contract. If one ton an hour is good enough, and earning 5.30 an hour is good enough, but anything less than 5.30 gets you fired, then they have to pay at least 5.30 a ton. That $3.25 per ton at the top of the sheet? That was not the $5.30 per ton that Edward understood the workers would be legally paid. It was clear they were not paying anything close to $5.30 a ton. Then it became obvious they were pricing the cane so that to earn $5.30 an hour, you had to cut over a ton and a half per hour. And people just couldn't do it. People clearly were not cutting fast enough. They just couldn't, physically could not. I don't care whether you're an Olympic champion, you cannot cut cane that fast. And that is why thousands of these workers wound up often getting paid $3 an hour. But if a worker was only cutting enough cane to earn $3 an hour, well, that's not going to work. That's below minimum wage, which, yes, also applies to H-2 visa workers. The company would have to make up the difference. Or it turned out, there was another option. To disguise the fact that they were pushing people too fast, they then had to match the hours to put down fewer hours than people worked to make it look like they were cutting more per hour than they actually were. A worker may have been in the fields for eight hours, but earning only $4 an hour. A timekeeper thinks, hmm, let's erase that. Let's say it was actually six hours. And like magic, the tickets say a worker is now earning $5.30 an hour. You were supposed to make $5 an hour? You made $5 an hour. Everything looks good to the government, looks good to the inspectors. And knowing the workers were unlikely to complain, the companies realized tens of millions of dollars every year by doing it exactly that way. One of the reasons this went on for so long was because the workers knew if they spoke out about the hours shorting, or anything else for that matter, they could be sent home. And to appreciate what a threat that was, I need to tell you one more detail about H-2 visas. There's strong evidence there was often also a background check for the cutters. If you'd cut cane before and complained about the pay or tried to unionize, you're blacklisted and you'll never be allowed back. Think back on the dog war when police with dogs rounded up and arrested workers striking over their wages and the sugar company got them deported. Remember, Selvin watched all this unfold. He didn't realize that's what was going on until later, that these men were being sent back home without warning or choice. I didn't know it was so serious until I heard when everything was done. I thought the police was there just to calm them down and they go back to work the next day. But I didn't get to come back. They sent them home. They sent them back to Jamaica. We've tracked down photos of one of the men who was arrested through a freedom of information request. He's barefoot, his thumb bandaged, and a patch on his inner arm. 
He's wearing a red tank top that's ripped on one shoulder, held together by a thread. Some people, lawyers trying to help the men, say they saw the men boarding the planes in their underwear. They hadn't had time to gather their possessions. All their belongings and everything they left there is maybe they got the money in their locker room and they left it. It made Selvin really nervous. The idea that he could be sent home like that. And that was a scary part, very scary part. That's the reason why I never want anything like that to happen to me. That's a system that is prone to exploitation of workers because the workers are totally at the mercy of the employer. And if the choice is, I can accept a job in the U.S. and I'm being cheated in that job, but it certainly is better than what I have at home in Jamaica, I'm inclined to just be quiet and accept those conditions and continue working in that job. Victor's take is that the men were more or less disposable. There are so many men, they cut their sugar cane, they didn't care, and them tell you plain, if you don't want to cut it, when you go home, your brother are coming. I mean, I know that supposedly they had a, a liaison officer for you who was supposed to help you sort out problems. Did you feel like you had resources, um, people that you could go to if there were problems with your, your pay or your treatment? Listen to me. Listen to me, miss. Tell you the truth. The listen after them. Them is no good. Them is no, no good. We asked the Sugar King companies and their trade group to respond to the claims that they underpaid their workers, the blacklisting, and much more about the working and living conditions on the farms in the 80s and 90s. No one replied. We also spoke to the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office because they were involved in the dog war. When asked about it, a representative told us, quote, this is over 35 years ago in which there was a different agency command structure, employees, etc. End quote. They didn't have anything further to say. Victor and his co-workers felt trapped by the system and ignored by the people supposed to represent them inside the sugar farms. They knew there were issues with their pay, but didn't know what they could or should do about it. And at this point, they had no idea there was a group of people outside the sugar farms who were eager to represent them. And how did these lawyers plan to represent them? By suing the major sugar companies. Edward wanted to launch a class action on behalf of a whopping 20,000 sugarcane cutters in America who they believed had been seriously underpaid. As is so often the case with the law, though, it's not the headline-grabbing stories which win cases. It's all in the details. Or as Edward had discovered, it's all in the contract. Contract law was just the most straightforward There are no defenses. If this is what you promised, this is what you have to pay. It seemed so easy at the time. It seemed so straightforward. I have never done a case that was more clear-cut. But you can't win a legal battle based on contract law without a contract lawyer. So they approached... This uh, local Florida attorney named Dave Gorman. Who specializes in business contracts. He's a very nice guy, very smart, very smart. He's very different from most of my friends. He drove a Harley, an enormous Harley. He was a biker, (laughs) in the long and short of it. Oh, Dave was, he, I met him, I saw, he 
He drove into Belglade, I believe, on his Harley, and he was wearing his leather jacket. He lifted weights, and he was a biker. That's all I can say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I I do have a motorcycle. I haven't ridden it much lately because of hip and back issues, but that doesn't mean you're a... I'm a goon, uh, I don't think. <laughs> what kind of motorcycle is it? It's a Harley-Davidson. I got a 1988 lowrider. When you ask people about Dave Gorman, they usually tell you he's a biker. And they also tell you... Dave enlisted in the Vietnam War. He had been a Vietnamese interpreter. He was a firebrand who had been in the Vietnam War. This came after a bit of boyish delinquency. Adding to the bad boy persona, Dave had dabbled in some frat boy behavior while at Duke University. I got in a little bit of trouble with the school after a fraternity party. The police, Durham County Sheriff picked me up. I mean, they didn't charge me with anything. I was drunk as a lord. But they did turn me into the school. So the school charged me with drunkenness and conduct on becoming a Duke gentleman. And um, Mm. it's kind of hard to argue. (laughs) By his own admission, Dave was lacking direction. I was, like, going nowhere fast, so I wound up enlisting for, uh, it was a four-year enlistment. He avoided being shot at in the war because he was so smart he could learn Vietnamese. I think he was, became a translator. After the war, Dave became a lawyer, moved to Florida, and figured maybe working in the law, he wouldn't have to take orders anymore. I was never particularly good at taking orders uh, in the Army. So his career began. He didn't plaster his own face on billboards or put ads on TV. He just waited for cases to come to him. My practice from the very, nearly the very beginning, I have never and would never advertise. And a life-altering case was just around the corner. So this intelligence officer turned lawyer, Dave Gorman, is sitting in his office. Same office I'm in now. And here comes, although it doesn't seem special at the time, the second fateful phone call in this story. That, to me, doesn't stand out as anything particularly strange or unusual. Dave didn't know it would be momentous. He gets calls like this all the time, from other lawyers working on big cases who want his help. And Dave likes to take on what he calls twilight zone cases, those that are odd or fall outside the norm. On the other end of the line is Edward Tuddenham. I remember I was sick that day. I was living in Austin, Texas. Edward is actually lying in bed, and he tells Dave about the case he's about to embark on, that he wants to sue the sugar industry on behalf of the workers, and he needs a contract lawyer. And I recognized immediately that he was smart and he knew what he was doing. And I think, conversely, he recognized that I knew what I was doing, too. I knew what this contract said, and I knew it should be a complete winner. So would Dave help out mounting this case? And I said, okay, well, that's, that's, yeah, that's fine. I don't mind doing that. Sounds interesting. And remember, if they were right, then these workers were owed tens of millions of dollars in extra wages. And the lawyers stood to pocket a couple of million dollars themselves. And so... No, it didn't take any convincing at all. I think we talked for 30 minutes, and he said, I'm on. That sounds like a great case. How can we lose? 
So Edward hops on the back of Dave's Harley, and they ride off into the sunset on their righteous highway towards destination justice. This could be the biggest case of their careers, and it seems unlosable. It all looked like smooth sailing. But that wouldn't make for much of a story, would it? This case was anything but smooth. Next time on Big Sugar. Did they know what they were getting into? No. <laughs> work. No. <laughs> the case went through so many twists and turns, Celeste. I don't think anybody anticipated what was going to happen. And it changed very, very quickly. Big Sugar is produced by Imagine Audio, Weekday Fun Productions, and Novel for iHeartMedia. The series is hosted by me, Celeste Headley. Big Sugar is produced by Jeff Eisenman at Weekday Fun Productions. It's executive produced by Kara Welker, Nathan Clokey, and Marie Brenner. Story editor and executive producer is Joe Wheeler. The researcher is Nadia Mehdi. Production management from Cherie Houston, Frankie Taylor, and Charlotte Wolf. Our fact checker is Sona Avakian. Field reporting by Amber Amorji. Sound design and mixing by Eli Block, Naomi Clark, and Daniel Kempson. Original music composed by Troy McCubbin at Alloy Tracks. Additional music by Nicholas Alexander. Special thanks to Alec Wilkinson, author of the book Big Sugar, and Stephanie Black, director of the documentary H2 Worker. Big Sugar is based on the Vanity Fair article In the Kingdom of Big Sugar by Marie Brenner. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing. Right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.